You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hmm? You could say that. I can see it in your eyes. You have the look of a man who accepts what he sees because he is expecting to wake up. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate, Neil? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I know exactly what you mean. Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? The Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now, in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Welcome to the 602 Club, Mr. Mills. <laughs> it's great to have you here. <laughs> I want a call and I want my lawyer to get out of the 602 Club. <laughs> uh, that sounds like a really good deal, but uh, how about I give you the finger <laughs> you give me my effing phone call? <laughs> oh. oh. Man, I'm so excited. Um, you know, we're here at the uh, 602 Club 200. I can't believe we've actually reached that number officially now, even though the supplementals have put us almost to 240. So it, it's been a whirlwind here. And I think, uh, I actually think it's um, November. We we reached the fourth anniversary, too, of the show. So a lot of things uh, happening, and I just I can't believe it's been that long. It's been a joy to be doing this, and and honestly, it's uh, it's a it's a real joy to start off the two two hundredth episode with 
you know, somebody that uh, has come to mean a lot to me as a friend. Uh And honestly, it's because of this show that we met. That is true. That's extremely true. It's actually, uh, you know, let's let's walk down memory lane. Yeah, it was uh, this show is the springboard of so much, isn't it? So the the 602 Club is like a uh, it's like the nexus in Star Trek Generations only happier and it doesn't require the destruction of planets. So that's pretty cool. I, I don't know. I, I feel like that Victorian Christmas would be kind of, that you know that Dickensian <laughs> Christmas spoke to me. I don't know what you're talking about. We so, got to do that. We got to do um, that one year. Is we got to cosplay uh, 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 Picard's Victorian Christmas or something like that. Oh my gosh! Oh, can you just um, like? Uh, I don't. I don't want to be in those knickers. Um, I'll wear the Starfleet uniform. Oh wait, yeah. I can't be Picard. I'm not the bald one. <laughs> but you can Dang be if you try a little harder. Oh I, yeah, I could. But you know, the last time I shaved my head, I was like, "This is why God gave me hair." So. <laughs> Well, as you can tell, uh, just a, a slightly looser uh, 602 Club, just because we are celebrating the 200th episode. And, and again, I mean, it's just crazy to uh, think of, of all that this show has given us. Uh, you know, I was uh, looking back, John, at the, the very first episode uh, that we did, and I, I you were on it. And so it's it's it feels like we've kind of come full circle. And like you said, um it spawns so many things. We do aggressive negotiations now together, and uh, I would I would say, strangely enough, and it's amazing how technology works. Uh, as we're going to be looking at the Matrix, that we've become really close friends, but we live on opposite sides of the country. Yes, um, you know, but uh, yeah, again, just it, it's. I want to just say a huge thank you to um, to all the listeners. I've really uh, loved doing this show. It, it, it was really born out of a passion project, uh, talking with Chris Jones uh, here and uh, just saying, you know, I would love to be able to talk about other things other than Star Trek, and I wanted a way to do that. And, you know, he allowed me to start up the 602 Club uh, and give me that opportunity and, uh, uh, you know... I already was planning next year. That's how 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 crazy it is uh, with all the films that are coming out then. And so, thank you for all of you that have been on the journey since episode one. Uh, thank you to all of you who have found us along the way. Maybe this is your first episode, and you're like, "Wow, this is a weird show already." <laughs> uh, it is. It's it's a it's a really fun show. I hope you will enjoy it. Our whole goal here has always been to just talk about films in a positive light, but not be afraid to be constructively critical. Uh, but allow that to lead to great conversation when we don't agree uh, and and allow that uh, to be okay. You know, we don't always have to agree on things, which is awesome. Um, it is really, I think, the spice of life to not always agree. And uh, so I hope that uh, you will enjoy the show. If you're, Again, if you're just finding us, go back to the back catalog over there on iTunes uh, you, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe, download all the episodes, and enjoy. Uh, we have so many different topics that we've covered uh, hit us up with a star rating review. Help the next 200 episodes, uh, help this show really grow. It, it cannot be overstated how important iTunes reviews are for podcasts. And I know it sounds strange, but really just a five-star review or any star review that you want to give us and what you decide you want to say about the show, your written review, uh, helps, helps people find it when they're searching for podcasts. There are so many more podcasts than when I started this you know, four years ago. So yeah, the market really seems to have exploded, doesn't it? 
It's really, uh, it's re- it's really something. But uh, you know, you you said your own, you know, thank yous and everything. But I, but I mean this sincerely. The whole reason that the six hundred two club has acted as a nexus is because of the fact that people know the type of conversation they're going to get here, and it's always a pleasant one, even when people aren't on the same side of something. And so, you know, tip of the hat to you. And there's a reason people listen and love this show. And, you know, you're doing a great job. And I know that I look forward to the next 200 episodes, which I expect you to churn out by May, Matt. (laughs) Well, and uh, who knows if I can if I can get you on as many of them as possible. Um, But in fact, I mean, heck, you you talked me into this this uh, Halloween watching Halloween. Yes. The original. Yes. Which. Okay, we never do this, but I'm just going to say, again, this is a very different show, and we're going to be a, a, a slight bit looser, but I'm going to say this. I went to the film, the movies these, this last week, and I saw uh, the trailer for the new Halloween film, mm-hmm. and I could not think of a better trailer for a film referencing an original and making itself in the trailer feel like, okay, I understand why this movie exists. Yep. Like I haven't even seen Halloween, and I could pick up from that trailer how well done th- that movie, the new one, seems to be so far. Yeah, uh, just by the the way that they structured the trailer, the way they introduced you know Jamie Lee Curtis and Michael Myers, I was really shocked. And so I got to—I mean, I don't know if I'll see that one in the theater, but we will be watching the original here coming out for you on Halloween. Can't wait. Uh, yeah, but I—I I was blown away that that i could i mean we we live in the nostalgia train i mean we're Mm -hmm, fully mm -hmm. on that you know train and so many things are getting remade and all the time but i was shocked that a horror movie sequel like number 12 in the series or whatever it is the way that they're doing it makes it feel legitimate as like okay this has a reason for story-wise existing and I was like wow that's amazing that a trailer for a genre I don't even like could do that and I certainly hope that when we do talk about Halloween uh this year that uh, you can under you can see why it turned into such a passion for everybody so yeah Yeah. here's open yeah well and it I mean it definitely did that so uh yeah that's some of the things that'll be coming up this year and uh, of course, you could find us on Twitter at TrekFM. Make sure you're following us there for all the different shows that we're doing. Uh, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. You can find us on our listeners-only discussion group, which is the Babel Conference. And it's a great place to interact with all the different listeners for all the different shows. And so to find that, go over to Facebook and you can type Babel into the search field there and you can find us. Or if you're on the website at Trek.FM, any of our show pages have a discussion button Hit that, and then I'll bring you over there. And then, you know, maybe you, I would love this. Write us an email over at trek.fm slash contact. Choose a show. Choose the 602 Club. Send in what were your favorite moments or your favorite episodes of the 602 Club. Maybe there's something we haven't covered yet that you would like to see us cover. Hit us up with some emails and and let us know, and maybe we'll share some of those uh, next week. Just talking about your favorite memories or your favorite shows and that kind of stuff. I would love to hear that. So definitely hit us up there over um, when you can send us an email on the website at trek.fm slash contact. But, uh, John, so I 
thought long and hard about what we wanted to cover for episode 200. I wanted it to be something kind of special. Um, try to do Willow, but then Willow isn't available on any medium right now. Le- digital no or otherwise. legitimate medium. Kind of shocking. Le- 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 it's true. <laughs> and I, I I didn't, you know, I, I was only going to do legitimate mediums. I wasn't going to go piracy, um, you know, uh, so no Jack Sparrow for me. So I thought it would be really cool to talk about a, a movie, and I don't think we'll probably do the other two. But The Matrix was a watershed event in pop culture mm-hmm. and for geek fandom in 1999, which is funny because when we enter into The Matrix, it's also the same year that The Phantom Menace comes out. And so for you, I have a very interesting story of how I got to see The Matrix. I was wondering what your experience with seeing it was because I feel like I've talked to a lot of people and everybody always seems to have something that, you know, got them into this movie in the first place. So I'm kind of wondering what it was for you. Okay. I was at the time uh, working as an assistant manager uh, at a toy store and I was, uh, you know, living the good life, right? I mean, come on. That's great. Yeah. I mean, nothing better than hearing, uh, we got another cleanup on aisle six. Well, fortunately, it was a small toy store. We were a boutique toy store. It was, it was, it was. Yes, we were a like boutique. one of those really nice KB toy stores. Uh, even smaller than that, uh, even more really? shishi. Okay. Yeah. Wow! But I weathered the Ooh, Beanie wow. Baby craze. So bring your worst world. Um, but I can tell you that my focus obviously was Phantom Menace. Period. End of sentence. Like that was it. That was what I was all about. Like I spent the year leading up to. Oh my gosh! It's the Phantom Menace is coming out. You know, go see the trailer, go see this, just talk about it until everybody's sick of hearing me talk about it. And The Matrix looked interesting, but not interesting enough that I made plans to go see it. I was like, oh, that looks kind of cool. You know, sure. But everybody seems to forget that Keanu Reeves wasn't exactly regarded as, you know, big time Mr. Action Movie Star at the time. Right. So, whoa. Yeah, exactly. Way harsh. Yeah, exactly. It's like what Bill and Ted (laughs) go to the what? What's going on here? And it looked interesting, but I wasn't dying to see it. Well, uh, you know, guy next door works at Starbucks and he goes and he sees it. He comes out and he is on fire about it. He's like, you got to go see this movie. I will go with you. We're going to go see this movie one afternoon. Because, of course, you know, you work day and night shifts and stuff like that. It's like, all right, fine. One afternoon, we're going to go see it. And I went and I saw it just on a lark. It's probably like a Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon. And I was stunned. Like, it just caught me completely by surprise. And I remember coming out of it totally, totally jazzed. Uh, I still love this film. I still think it's fantastic. And I remember even being a little bit conscious later when conversations shifted toward the Phantom Menace, realizing it's it undercut it. It stole some of the thunder. And I think that one of the most interesting things about it was it almost seemed to become a battle line uh, between the Matrix and Star Wars. That was our that was that was the either or moment and sort of the the argument point for nerds and film nerds and stuff like that. Yeah, it's like a moment where, you know, it became you were the really cool nerd if you liked the Matrix right. and you like, you know, were pooping on the Phantom Menace. 
and and I was the guy standing there going, well, can't we like them both? And it's it seems that that conversation mm-hmm. seems to continue through so many things today, doesn't it, Matt? The, I mean, <laughs> nothing new yeah, under the sun, it man. Really does. <laughs> it, it is. It, it's so fascinating because uh, you know. 1999 was a year that, I mean, regardless of what you think of the Prince song, uh, it, it mm. really had a lot to do with with fandom, and it really did change everything. Because not only is that when you get the Phantom Menace, and then you get that backlash there, and like you said, we, we start to create these demarcation lines in fandom of gatekeepers like, oh, you're not cool if you like the Phantom Menace, but you are cool if you like the Matrix, um, you know, and it's also the the boom of when the internet really starts to hit. Oh yeah, and that kind of thing starts to become a thing. Uh, and what's so fascinating is is that this kind of microcosm of you know the late twentieth century is so tied in with so many of the things that the Matrix itself talks about. You know, mm-hmm. and and the way that we're moving there. And I, I think it's so interesting because, so for me, um, I am at summer camp that year. I'm I'm going to be a, a um, counselor. I'm also going to be a lifeguard. And so I had to go early for lifeguard training, which that coincided with when The Phantom Menace came out. So I didn't get to see The Phantom Menace when it opened, the day it opened. I had to wait till the weekend we were done with training so we could all go and see it then love the phantom menace it was great and then i'm at camp for half the summer and so i don't really go to the movies i'm not hearing that stuff i'm like i mean i have less than 24 hours off you know every week uh to do my laundry hang out with my camp friends and then you know we're right back at it with a new set of kids and so uh and of course you know like that summer i've got the qui-gon and the obi-wan lightsaber that the kids in my cabin if they're good they can battle with each other and that kind of stuff. So I'm like the cool counselor. Yeah. And we're having a great time, and it's a great summer. So I get home um, after that three months, or the, the month and a half that I'm there, because uh, it was just a half summer that year. And all of my friends are like, have you seen The Matrix? I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, you have to see this movie. I'm like, okay. Uh, I haven't even seen a trailer for it. So I just go to the movies with them because they're all telling me I have to see this movie. And, you know, I mean, I trust them. We So we go to the movies. The movie melts down. No. After Keanu Reeves says, I know Kung Fu. No way. Okay. I don't even get to finish it the first time. Think. Uh, I don't even get to finish it the first time. Think about how impossible that situation is even becoming now. To have the film, oh, it's true. Like break and melt now. How yeah. crazy is no, that? Yeah, kids don't even know what that's like. Yeah, that isn't that insane. Uh, that's insane. It, it, it was insane. Um, what was insane was having to wait because they were all like, "Oh, son of a gun!" Like that's when the. I mean, the, the it's just, and of course, once you see it again, you realize that's when the movie just totally kicks off. Yes, when you know the moment you do the kung fu scene, and so. I see it, and of course, I, you know, I, I think it's great. I love it. It's fantastic. I'm with you. You know, I'm never. I was never one of those people who had to choose. You know, I just liked them both. And honestly, it was kind of like that Star Wars, Star Trek thing. It's like it's a different type of movie anyway. Yeah. 
But what was fascinating to me, uh, and I was watching some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, is is just, you know, getting into the Matrix here, I was surprised how both of the films kind of deal with kind of very similar ideas, which is, you know, they they have a chosen one, mm-hmm. you know, and what that all means. And in many ways, you know, I felt like the Matrix was kind of the beginning of something new in the, you know, like Lucas had revolutionized filmmaking uh, in 77, and then he helped revolutionize filmmaking again with The Phantom Menace. And these guys come along with this film that it's it's it was like another Star Wars where it just kind of came out of nowhere for so many people mm-hmm. and blew their minds. And it gave us a whole new view of what action filmmaking could be. I mean, so it was so interesting the way that this all played together because in, in a lot of ways, too, these guys even came to Warner Brothers. I didn't know this. And said, hey, uh, yeah, we've got this trilogy. And the guy was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's just try and get one of these made. Right. Um, much like Lucas coming with his big old script, you know, and uh, them, yeah. you know, carving out <laughs> yeah, you, you, episode four. You, you might want to redraft this. You know, there's some good stuff yeah. in here, but well, let's winnow it down, <laughs> you know. Well, and and it's so fascinating because that's how the um, executives and many of the people who read the script for The Matrix were, they were like, there's some good stuff here, but I don't really necessarily understand all of it. Right. Um, which makes sense when you think about this movie and the philosophy in it. And, and I mean, this movie is a is a case study of, of philosophy and theology uh, and ethical and moral ideas that, hasn't really been seen in movies even since I don't think like yeah I well I, I think one of the most interesting things about it is it's an action movie and at its core is this incredibly uh, Philip K. Dick-esque uh, examination of yes. the question of identity who are you really is it an expression of your mind is it the physical world's uh, you know, are you reflect? Are you reflecting your environment, or are you shaping it? And what I think is really fascinating about the Matrix in specific is this idea. I mean, it it is again, like you said, a lot like Star Wars. This sort of neo Buddhist idea that the way I perceive reality is the way that reality would be, and once I get my mind around a certain concept and there is no spoon and all of those sorts of things, it really becomes, uh, you know, just a really satisfying sort of action film. And, you know, on top of that, you know, you have these incredible discussions about the nature of reality and identity couched in this film that is heavily, heavily influenced by, you know, the the John Woo Hong Kong, the wire foo effects movies and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's just, you know, just a philosophy lesson, uh, you know, packaged in a really slick fashion. And I the one thing I remember about it being when it was released and a bit of controversy that got attached to it was uh, Columbine. Because this came out shortly before Columbine, and the way that that those two decided to dress, people started trying to connect it to the Matrix as an influence. I remember that, 
and that eventually got dropped, but it was it, it very much lent itself to that debate as well about how influential is violence in the cinema or on television on the way people think about things. Because while this is a very, you know, interesting philosophical thing wrapped in an action package, I mean, the violence in it is so over the top, you know, especially that ending. It's very memorable. It's very visual. It's very amazing. And it's not surprising to me the way that Heath Ledger's portrayal of the Joker in The Dark Knight then triggered those discussions about, well, how how young is too young to see this? And, you know, those sorts of discussions going back and forth. That's something that I, I find fascinating, too, because, you know, at that time period, I feel like we were moving towards that place where people just stopped taking ratings seriously. Yeah. You know, and like you, you really start to I feel like in that time period and now, like you just really start to see kids in movies that they shouldn't be in. You know, this is not a movie for a six year old. You know, this is not even a movie for maybe a 12 year old. Um, yes, yeah. this, this is a mature film. You know, and so um, I I do think The Matrix is one of those those movies that I skirted that line where I think people thought it was cool and then they ended up taking their kids to it. And and it's like, you know, I wish this probably isn't the place to have that that discussion. But, you know, they're they're film ratings mean something, you know, and and so you know. I don't care if you're 16 or it's, even some 18 year olds probably shouldn't watch certain things, you know, like it's it's just just because you're a certain age or just because you are, you know, whatever doesn't mean that everything is, is going to be OK for you to watch. And, and the Matrix was definitely one of those films. But, yeah, I mean, God, go to the film, the, the uh, movies these days is a PG-13 movie. And some of them are just as bad as our movies, except for less F-bombs, and you got like a five-year-old sitting next to you, and it just makes you feel so uncomfortable. Right. Uh, yeah, it, it's it, it's very true. You know, you, you compare The Matrix to something that came out in nowadays that's a PG-13, and, and you know, and that, that sort of thing, that's always going to become a debate, but I think you're absolutely right, because I think that the one that first kicks down the door is Starship Troopers, uh, which came out a couple mm-hmm. years before this, mm-hmm. in terms yeah, of yeah. No, what's I pushing remember, an R... Yeah. And I, th- I, I think that this very much is in that wave where people stop taking. If yeah. it was sci-fi yeah. violence, they didn't take it as seriously as real violence. And then, you know, there's that that whole debate uh, going on. But what I really find fascinating, even as I revisit this with its violence, is it it's not the fault of the film, right? It's not the fault of the creators. They treat things with a specific weight and take the time to make it very clear that they would prefer not to kill people, but any one of these people you're interacting with is an agent. You have to be aware of that. And so they 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 very responsibly, I think, take the the important and, you know, also just in terms of story mechanics, it's very interesting to say the lady in the red dress that catches your eye, that could be Agent Smith. So you so, they, they couch that violence in a necessity to the story that, uh, you know, makes it very clear that it's not just about, uh, you know, being violent for violence sake. There's no other choice. 
Right. Well, and I I think you know you're really onto something there because story wise, I mean, you even see that inside their midst, you have somebody who becomes an enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody they trusted that turns against them because they desire to go back into the matrix. You know, and so you end up with this uh, realization that it, it's not just people inside the matrix. It could still be the person next to you choosing to say, hey, I, I, I'd rather be in the this fake world. I'd rather be a battery, but pretend I'm not, you know, uh, so that I can, you know, be rich and, like, life is easy. Um, so I'd rather live in a lie than the truth. And because, you know, which, I don't like the truth. Which in and of itself is such an interesting discussion that they're having over that dinner because he says, I want to remember nothing, nothing. And ever since I first saw that in the theater, it's always spurred that discussion of, well, then if you don't remember, you know, like it, it becomes that whole thing where they say, oh, well, you know, bad times happen so you can appreciate the good. If he has no memory of these awful things, of this hard life that's out there, what value are his good memories? Because he hasn't had to put in the time to succeed the way that they're going to let him succeed. You know, like there's this, there's, I think, a very interesting look at that too, you know, like you're saying about the reality of it. Well, and I think, uh, you know, that really leads us into this whole idea of that, you know, the idea of simulation, like this movie Mm -hmm. feels almost more relevant today than it even did then. And I think that's a hallmark of of a good film. And I think the Wachowskis had in some way they're, they're kind of seeing where the future is going to go. And, and like you, you know, you mentioned Philip K. Dick and we talk about, you know, we've talked about the the Blade Runner films here and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, Nick and I just talked about um, man in the high castle, you know, so these, these, big ideas that that he would play with and they're definitely playing with those type of ideas as well and this whole digital age i mean i was thinking about how you know we move further into the digital age and we constantly have our nose in some kind of device and we Mm -hmm. like cypher give up the real for something simulated whether that's social media friends porn i mean the list is kind of endless of the things that we give up for things that are not real. And so, you know, we literally exchange the truth for the lie. We exchange the the simulation for the reality because we can then control the real uh, the the simulation. At least we think we can. Um and 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 the problem is is that the simulation ends up becoming either addiction or like in this movie, the simulation takes over as the machines take over and you have no control over anything whatsoever. Yeah, and tied in with that, I think, is... I think what really um, just absolutely seals the deal with this is Agent Smith, Hugo Weaving's performance of that monologue where he's talking to Morpheus. And he says, we gave you Utopia. You rejected it. You don't believe that things can be perfect. Like, and so, yeah, you're absolutely right. We want to live in this simulation, but there's the, he's speaking to this, there's almost this sick side of everybody where they don't want it to be all, you know, uh, you know, roses and, and, and bacon and stuff like that. They want the, the ugly side of things. And 
you know, to speak to that, you look at the way those online environments you're even mentioning, you know, like social media should be a utopia where we can go in and we're all going to talk about things and have a good time. And then you see this awful side come out and it's, what are you doing here? And so then in and of itself speaks to, you know, how twisted is it that the matrix has to create uh, an imperfect reality so that people don't reject it. it? It speaks to the de- the desire that people have, you know, that he even says you're like a virus. You eat up everything as you go around. It's such a, a nihilistic view of the world, but at the same time, it's like the Joker's speech about being ahead of the curve. It has that that little seed of truth about it that makes you uncomfortable to hear it because you realize that it is speaking to an underlying uh, fact of life. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and what's, what's kind of fascinating is, you know, the whole idea of like Cypher choosing the simulation because he actually is going to go live in a world where it's going to be pretty perfect. He's going to be rich. He's going to be famous. He's not going to have, you know, the, the problems he has in the, in the reality. And so that, you know, th- this whole idea of kind of like running away from reality because it can be tough, it can be ugly, it can be dirty. But one of the things that I think that's so interesting is that how the movie is, you're, you're talking about kind of like this neo-Buddhist idea, but it also involves a lot of other ideas and theologies and philosophies. And really it seems to be that these, you know, people like Morpheus and Trinity and what we uh, hear from these people that live in this place called Zion, that there is this idea that it is this mind-body-spirit connection where you it's you aren't just a mind, you know. Um, you are all of it. And so you being fully you in the real, even if it's ugly, is better than being in the lie because that's really... It, it doesn't even like it you because you're not you you're you're hooked into something that's like helping you know move all these pieces around like this massive you know online multiplayer game you know right <laughs> um right. and and so this actually gives you that free will that you have been given as a human being to to truly make decisions for yourself um in that way and and there's just I mean there's so much happening there but it's so interesting because again you just kind of see this struggle that we have as humans like we want to have a perfect life but then if that there's gonna come a time where that simulation rings hollow like it is and leaves us feeling completely empty and either nihilistic we'll, we'll you know end up at death, you know, we'll, we'll just, we'll, we'll end it all. Or we're going to have to find some sort of something in the real to give us hope to keep going. And that's the, the two sides there. I think you're just so fascinating in what's happening in this movie is everybody, you know, they free these people and then they end up having, you know, before they get freed, they have to make that choice. You can't go back, you know, like once you make this decision, this is it, you know, you're out of the simulation forever. Right. You're, you're, once you're aware that you're in a dream state, you can't continue dreaming. And in that sense, that even layers on a whole other thing of, you know, to speak to your, uh, you, you know, your point about how 
there are other theologies laid in there, this idea of they want to go back in and, uh, in a sense, uh, you know, proselytize. They want to bring people out of the dream, and it's very interesting because you have people who, you know, who are, you know, who are represented there who, you know, oh, I'm, I'm part of the real world. I'm 100% natural born. I'm tied to the world, to the natural order, if you will. I've never been plugged into the machine and I can't be. And so you have that debate. Are they really doing something good for these people? Because, and I think that's what sort of the, the argument is there with Cypher is do people really want to be awakened and at what point is it an obligation to awaken them and make them realize what's going on as a dream or isn't the way the world is supposed to work and that the only way it's going to get better is if everybody does wake up, if everybody does come out of the dream and it's really it's really interesting because it's, it, it is that whole debate of like, you know, are you of the world or are you of the dream? And how is it that these people can go back and forth? I mean, in a sense, I would almost, if I were in this predicament, I'd be afraid to plug back into the machine, right? Because if I go back there, there's sunlight and there's warmth and there's good food and there's all of this stuff. You can understand why mm-hmm. Cypher is able to fall. You know, I I think that's a really interesting thing because uh, you. I was thinking a couple of things while you were talking. I was like, one, uh, life is not a dream, Captain. Um, <laughs> Go to sleep, spot. And uh, that was just for you, buddy. Um, <laughs> and also I was thinking, uh, you know, this whole idea of that once you turn out you know, away from the dream, uh, and you're in the reality, um, really what it becomes. And it's funny, obviously, cause they play the, the end song, wake up, you know, this, you, mm-hmm. you rage against the machine, you know, that this thing that is holding down your, your brethren who are still enslaved, you know, and, and, um, that, that, that whole idea here of that there is an awakening. Have you felt it? Um, and this, this idea that, uh, and, and what's fascinating is it's, it's, it, it's not really Christianity, it's Gnosticism uh, that we have this special knowledge, you know, and it, it awakens us, you know, and it makes us one of the, the, you know, redeemed. Um, and then we have to pass on this special knowledge to wake you up, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you, you, but that, that whole idea that, yeah would you want to go back into it? But I was thinking, as you said that the, one of the things I think they do so well in the simulation and in the matrix itself, and, and just kind of this world building uh, of the matrix, the world of it is that the matrix, when you go back into it, you realize this eerie green Mm -hmm. hue that it has. Like it's it, once you have been awakened from it and you've been in the real world, you realize how kind of like, sickly it feels to be back in the matrix it, it's not comforting to be there and i love the way that they build the the worlds here so that the matrix has that kind of like 
code, nasty green hue to it. Everything is laid out in a grid. You know, every everything is kind of drab and boring. And then you get to the real world, and even though it is really drab and boring and ugly, there are these, like, uh, cooler, more comforting hues of blue uh, and, and this reality that you get. And so, yeah, I, I, I love the world building here because I think it's it's fantastically done. Like the, the, the way that they construct the, the world of the Matrix, I feel like the Wachowskis had really thought through everything they needed to to make this feel complete and whole as a thought process so that you weren't coming out of the film. And even when I watch it now, I'm like not trying to point into different holes or whatever. I right. just, I feel like it's a complete story. It is. Does that make sense? It, yes, it, it absolutely makes sense. And I'm glad you pointed out like how beautifully this is photographed and, uh, and the, you know, the color differences between the two worlds and everything. And in a visual sense, yeah, it's more, it feels, it looks and creates a more relaxed uh, feeling in the viewer when you're in the real world stuff. Even though it's a harsher world, it looks more like the world you want to be a part of. And it does become very pronounced, that, that fluorescent tinge to everything inside the Matrix. And... Um, I I just I, I'm just really glad you know you, you point that out and I would say that that coupled with that uh, in terms of like a story construction way is that one of the things that I think is really fantastic that they do is that they are very careful to make sure that the uh, the real world violence, quote unquote, you know, the stuff that Cypher does and the stuff that, you know, when he gets, uh, you know, killed and everything feels and moves very real world. It's a very, even that staging is a very uh, stark contrast to what you see in the Matrix. Everything in the Matrix, everybody moves very fluidly, very beautifully, very staged, very very airy if you will like there's there's less weight to their movement whereas everything in the real world has a very deliberate slow moving feel to it there there's a there's actually like a slower pace to the way they block everything yeah no that's a that's a really good thought i had actually not thought but what as you were talking i was thinking back of that scene you know when cypher you know mm-hmm. uh, kills dozer uh, and it's oh, it, it it is visceral, which made you me know, so there, angry. A, by the way, just I'm sorry to interject, but when Dozer that I got so mad at Cipher when oh that yeah, oh me sorry, too. I sorry. still get angry. Yeah, uh, no, I I I'm right there with you. I I, I was watching it again, and I, I just still irks me every time when he does that. And and it's, you know there's the way Cipher's doing it, and he's crawling all over Trinity, and you're just yeah. like you just can't wait for that creep to die. It's it's. It's so well done, but yeah, the, the, that visceral nature to it, that that um, it, it, it and it feels more personal because these are people that we know. Like you said, the Matrix, the violence feels like a video game, mm-hmm. um, it, and and it's supposed to, you know, in many ways. And part of that is because they are breaking those conventional rules to which we can't actually do in the real world. Like as you mentioned earlier, the fact that 
you know, the world of the Matrix really kind of involves this 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 whole kung fu, wire fu uh, type of, of feel to it that the Wachowskis are so uh, much fans of. Uh, I mean, they like Japanimation and uh, anime mm-hmm. and those type of comic books and everything, so they're very familiar with that, that type of movement and all of those type of films, um, which is also interesting that, you know, when we were talking earlier, George Lucas being so inspired by, like, Kurosawa and the samurai films and... and all coming from that we're, we're seeing these influence and not only that but you know the world of the matrix as we were talking about a little bit ago is also inspired by all of these philosophical ideas these theological ideas that are coming from different religions um you know like buddhism and christianity and Tao, Taoism and all these type of things um and and it's just it's it's fascinating to see that two of the biggest franchises uh, the Matrix and, and Star Wars both have those really key cores to their world building. Um, and it, it, I think it speaks to the fact that why it took off is that they're asking really big questions in the world of the Matrix. And and I think you, you just put your finger right on it right there, why there was that line of demarcation, why there were people that went nuts for the Matrix and then, set, and then distanced themselves from Phantom Menace is... Lucas's influence points, we've talked about this before, Lucas's influence points are, Kurosawa, are things that predate us, Flash Gordon, those sorts of things. They're a wonderful doorway into it and, you know, amazing in their own rights and created their own pathway. And I think that the reason for the Matrix stealing some of that thunder, besides, I mean, and, and the thing is, I want to make sure, and I know that you feel the same way, when we talk about it stealing the thunder, we are not in any way diminishing the Matrix. The Matrix deserved the praise that it got. The Matrix deserved the reception that it got. We are in no way pushing that aside. What I'm saying is that I think that the reason it resonated more specifically with people in our age group is the fact that the inspiration points for the Matrix were things that we had actually grown up with. I grew up watching anime. I grew up watching Hong Kong action flicks. I grew up watching these things and, re- you know, reading Kafka in high school and reading, uh, you know, uh, Dick and reading Heinlein and reading these these sorts of things. So when I see the Matrix, it was most likely the same sort of resonant frequency that my dad had when he saw Star Wars and he was like, oh, right. that's Buck Rogers. That's Flash Gordon. That's I, I recognize this. That's John Ford. So I think that's why you see that specific splash with our age group. Yeah, and I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, you just put your finger on something that I had never put on my love of Star Wars, which is, I grew up with all those old movies. I grew mm-hmm. up with all those westerns. And so, you know, the John Ford influence, all of that kind of stuff that comes through in Star Wars, it it makes sense for me to get into that, which is interesting because I didn't grow up with Japanimation or anime or uh, you know, any of those kung fu type movies. Um I didn't, but I still plugged into the world of the Matrix and and mainly it was because of them dealing with these these thematic elements these mm-hmm. these philosophical and theological elements so you know those are you, you know how important those are to me of course when thinking about movies and so really digging into that and having that be such a key 
And I just I I think the the thing that they do is in the world of the Matrix and in both of them, but particularly when you're inside the Matrix, is how much the dialogue is telling you about what the story of the movie is before you realize it is. Now when you go back, you watch it, and the guy's like, oh, man, you're my savior and personal Jesus Christ. And you're like, because he's the one. Right. You know? um, so even a lot of the cursing in this movie is actually referencing people standing there, not actually a curse, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, two, you get um, those things like uh, the, her calling him Copper Top and stuff like that, where it's just it's very cleverly written so that if you're watching it for the first time, you're not picking up all those cues necessarily, but as you go back, you see how they've woven into the story all of the plot points just dialogue-wise before you get there story-wise, right. which is, is really fun. So it, it again, it makes the world of the Matrix, I think, and especially this, this first one, so much fun to go back because you keep picking up little clues and little things every time you rewatch it, and it just makes it a, an enjoyable adventure. And then, you know, I think getting into more, for me, as I got older, like anime and stuff, you see the influence there of, you know, the the ghosts in the shell type of stuff Mm -hmm. and that that comic book world that exists in anime. And I, 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 it feels like, especially in the real world, in the, you know, on the Nebuchadnezzar, I was like, it's not really steampunk. It kind of feels like, I I termed it digit analog punk. Because it's like yeah. digital plus analog, you know, all meshed together. Uh, yeah. And I, I just, the way it's done, it feels, they, they did a great job of making you feel like, okay, this is a world where people are scrounging mm-hmm. through the scraps of dead cities. And, and this is what you come up with. And it's just, it, it. It feels realistic without it, and again, it's just a Star Wars thing. It feels realistic without it having to explain to you how it all works. Exactly. You just buy that it works. Exactly. And I used to, and it, it always went over like a lead balloon, um, and this is just a random thought that fires in, but uh, that scene where Cypher is sitting there, and he's looking at the screens, and Neo walks up, and of course we later mm-hmm. find out Cypher is setting up his meeting with Agent Smith and everything, and he said, oh, you scared me. Oh, you know, you'll get used to seeing it. Like for me right now, this is blonde brunette redhead, right? That used to be how I would explain the way that I could see like the, you know, the, the background workings of web pages and stuff when I first got into that field. I was like, oh, you remember Cypher from The Matrix? Never played as well as a joke uh, as I had hoped. But I think, you're, I think your point about the fact that it is uh, sort of like a, a digital hipster feel to it is really, uh, really cool because that in and of itself is another sort of parallel with Star Wars because the Nebuchadnezzar feels like a used universe. It feels like something that could work if you actually were in there. And I like I'd love. I, I think I think it's a shame that, in a sense, the Matrix has become, in a sense, that artifact because. I would like something, some theme park somewhere to set something up where I could walk through a section like that, where I could sit down in the seat or something like that. Wouldn't play well with the kids, but it'd be neat. Right. Well, and and I I think, you know, just quickly, the, the reason that that happens is because the other two Matrix films don't hit 
the way, you know, the original Star Wars films hit mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, Empire Strikes Back becomes beloved and everybody's favorite for the most part. And then, you know, Return of the Jedi is not beloved, but it wraps up the trilogy in a way that people don't feel let down. Whereas people came out of the last Matrix film, most of them very disheartened and frustrated with it, myself included. Yep. Uh, but I, the, I'd say this original film, I just forget those other two exist, and to me, this this works. And part of that is the the question about you know what you believe. I really liked the beginning of the movie where Cipher asks. Trinity, and it, it's just when they're even on the phone, and it's like incoming call, mm-hmm. and they, she's like, "He's like, um, do you believe?" And she's like, "It doesn't matter what I believe." Mm-hmm. And I love how that by the end of this movie, it absolutely matters what she believes because it's her belief that saves the entire film. You know, it, it, it's it's that whole idea of of what we believe about who we are and reality at, at the core of the story is that question. And it's very much, again, a question that you saw in the Phantom Menace, you know, your focus determines your reality mm-hmm. is what Qui-Gon said. And that's pretty much what we have here in the matrix about perception and reality and uh, what you can achieve in life and in the matrix. And, and it has to do with who you uh, believe yourself to be. And, that is, is there nothing, are we nothing more than machines? Mm-hmm. Or is there some kind of transcendence is of uh, to, to be a human being? And that key question of are we just machines or are the, is there something that's actually special about being human, this movie asks. And I love that it dares to ask that, especially in this day and age when the answer seems to be Pretty much, no, there's really nothing now that special about being a human being. Well, you know, there, there's something very interesting uh, in that vein. I, I think you're onto something there, definitely, because of the fact that, and Skynet blazes this trail, but always we've had this question of these things that we're going to create, how are they going to turn out? What part of our nature are they going to reflect? And I find it very interesting because, specifically in the conversation of The Matrix, the difference seems to be that humans are able to find hope and are able to build, are able to believe in something else. Whereas the Matrix, and specifically as expressed in the character of Agent Smith and the other agents that go along with him, is the fact that the machine is a nihilist, is you see the world that the machine is a part of, that the machine creates, is similar to the fact that in Terminator there's this belief that once Skynet gains sentience, its conclusion is going to be, oh, screw humans, and just boom, everything's done. And I think that is... Why is it that way? Is, I think, the the corollary conversation with that. But I think that the movie posits that the core difference about being human is the ability and the desire to find something more hopeful and better than what reality is. And in many ways, that whole question of, you know, as Nick and I talked about last week with the man in the high castle and this whole idea of realizing there's, there's something wrong with this universe, you know, like the, Mm -hmm. and that whole thing I I mentioned in in that episode with C.S. Lewis, you know, if, 
if I have a desire for another world or something else that nothing in this world can fill, then my my conclusion has to be that I'm made for another world. And that's exactly what we see in the Matrix uh, from the very beginning. Neo having this inclination, there's something wrong. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is. That's, it, you know, as John Mayer famously put, there's something missing. Right. Um, and I don't know what it is or how to fix it. And he comes, you know, somebody comes along and helps him see the light, the reality. The, they, they give him the truth that, you know, what what has happened. And I, I, I think, you know, when I was thinking about the whole idea of what's the difference between machines and, and hum, humans is that we see the machines, their only desire is to continue to be. Mm-hmm. But for humanity, and it and it's expressed specifically in someone like Neo or Trinity or, you know, Morpheus, that just to be is not enough. You know, just to exist is not enough. Otherwise, it would be fine to be in the Matrix because it, you're at least alive or somewhat alive, right? But that's not enough. There there needs to be the this sense that you are a part of something that is actually true and real and and right even though it's it's in a world that feels wrong in the sense of like what's happened the machines are in control all that but you're still in a place that's more right and so i just i'd love again where the the philosophy and the theology of this film is so fascinating and it i think you know um i was watching some of the extras and lawrence fishburne was like i can't believe that this movie got made Hmm. because you know, it, it's just not the type of movie that you expect to be made when it, when it, you see the questions that it's asking. And it's really, it is asking a lot, I think, of the audience to keep up with it philosophically. And that's just not something you see. But then they've couched it in a kung fu action movie. And I think maybe that's what allows people to go along for the ride. And maybe they can just turn off their brains for the philosophy and theology and enjoy the action. Mm-hmm. But if you want, there's some, I don't know. Maybe there, that's the part of it. Is just there's something more to the film if you want it to be more. I I think you're absolutely right that the way you get this movie made, the way that you sneak it through the system, is you show. Oh my gosh, no! You should see these big action set pieces, and it's going to bring the kids in, and they're going to sell tons of popcorn, and they're going to everybody's going to talk about all the action and the the flying and the leaping and all of that stuff. And they're like, "Yeah, that sounds like a great movie." And all right, let's sneak in the meaning while they're looking the other way. Like that—that's really, I think you're spot on with that. And isn't that what George did with Star Wars? Another parallel. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, um, because we're getting closer to, to the end, but, you know, the fact that this really is a kung fu action movie, but it, it changes what we think of as film. In a lot of ways, the way Star Wars did in 77, this movie changed the idea of an action film in Hollywood and what you could do. Ushers in a whole new era with slow-mo and bullet time and all of those things that we just take for granted now, which, you know kids can do in their sleep on their computers these days yeah, that you right. know, took them you know ages to figure out exactly how to get this to happen um you know i, I, I rewatching the movie i was just surprised how well it all still holds up yeah it does and I, and i think that it, it does hold up incredibly well 
And I think that one of the things that aids it is the fact that a, a lot of this crazy stuff that they're doing, they use the right kind of camera trick or slow motion at the right moment. Um, but they also, when they have a digital background uh, or or something like that, they even if you see the seams from time to time, your brain can instantly say, oh, well, they're in the computer. Yeah, that's why that looks like that. I, that is not to diminish the effects. I think, I think the effects are, are great, and I agree with you. They hold up. They are uh, terrific. And I, I, I think it's funny, too, because of the fact that that quote-unquote bullet time thing, and I always, I always talk about this, but that bullet time thing, we had all seen a small representation of it in Gap ads uh, before this. They didn't do a full 360, but they did like a, a slight a quarter turn around. And I remember everybody at the time like, oh, that's a neat effect, right? But it was not applied uh, the way that it was here. And bullet time was a, oh my gosh, that was a huge, I remember seeing that for the first time. And just saying, whoa, that, that was just such a different way to look at and think about things uh, and, and the way that the, the effects uh, were going to work. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I don't know that you can really heap enough praise on just how much attention to detail there was with the way that they constructed things so that you would buy into this pseudo-reality they were selling. And I think one of the ways that they do that is by insisting that it's the actors doing the action. Mm -hmm. And so that they put all of these actors through an incredible boot camp, uh, four months and, and beyond, of teaching them how to do these things with these incredible kung fu masters, you know, these these action artist masters that are used to making films with people who actually fight. You know, um, and they come here and these guys can't even punch or kick mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and they have to teach them all how to do this. And, and they they gave them a style that was kind of based on who they are and their movements, you know, and uh, I didn't know this, but um, Keanu Reeves couldn't. The reason you don't see him kick much in the film in his fighting style is because he had had his spine severed up here in his neck and it hadn't healed completely the way it was supposed to by the time they're doing all this training and stuff, and he could never really do that type of movement. Uh, so uh, all of that, though, I think, as you were talking about, when you, you know, maybe you'll see the seams, but I think the reason you don't really see the seams much is because you always know that the actors are the ones doing the action. Right. And therefore, it's got your focus completely on the uh, them. And so mm -hmm. you're, you're not so tied into everything else and I think that's the thing that really makes it kind of fascinating and really cool um, that they they made uh, that I mean they just made that as a um, it's really cool that they they took that idea and they ran with it and they made it something that yes we we must we must have these characters and these actual actors doing this. And I think that's the thing that fascinated me. Um, and really, it makes the movie work. You know, um, I, I think it really changes the way that uh, we see film. Um, and 
a lot of movies, you know, are taking that to amazing heights now. Like when we talked about uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, you know, mm-hmm. and you, it means so much more when Tom Cruise is doing the action. They really understood that, and and the Matrix uh, is something special because you know it's Keanu Reeves and <laughs> it's you know Carrie Ann Moss and and it's Lawrence Fishburne doing the action. And, and in a sense, you could say they broke Keanu. Or maybe they reshaped him because um, John Wick, I think, is maybe an extension of this is, you know, like this remakes Keanu Reeves to be a viable action star sort of thing. And then, you know, if not for this, you could make the argument, does John Wick ever come across for him? Uh, You know, like this is an important moment of reinvention. And you, I think you have to give a lot of credit because I think all of the performances in this film are great. They're, they are pitch perfect across the board. Hugo Weaving is a revelation. American audiences didn't know. I didn't know who the hell he was before this. And when you have a great villain, who does everybody come out talking about? Everybody came out talking about Agent Smith. Like, oh my gosh, he was so cool. And the fact that you had, I think... Uh, a lead character played by an actor who is, you know, yeah, okay, he wasn't an action star, but he was still a recognizable name. You had somebody with enough awareness and humility to step back and allow those other great performances and focus moments to happen. How many how many stories do you hear about stars who come on board to a thing and it's like, no, I'm the star. You're going to pay all your attention to me. But everybody in this cast gets a moment to shine gets a reason to shine in this script. And it's it's an amazing thing. It makes the whole film better and it makes everybody everybody's performance better. Yeah, I think that's uh I mean, when I was thinking about it, you know, gosh, Trinity and Carrie on Moss mm-hmm. are, is the coolest person at the beginning of the film. You know, like it, Keanu Reeves as a character isn't really cool until about halfway through this movie. Yeah. You know, um Lawrence Fishburne is way cooler than he is for a good two thirds of the movie. You know, so you really do see this this whole thing, and I I kind of reference Star Wars again, where you know uh, I don't know if everybody's loving Luke Skywalker at the beginning, but dang that Han Solo, he sure is cool. Man, that Obi Wan Kenobi is a cool character too. You know, like everybody's cooler than the main character, which is Luke, until you get to the end of the movie. You know, and like by the time you get to the end of this movie, Neo is the one you're thinking of. Yeah, you know, with with everything he ends up doing. But throughout the journey, like you said, everybody else, especially of that the, that trinity of characters, each one of them comes out on top as an incredible character that you think of as a trinity and not just, oh, one at a time. You know, like it, they do right. such a great job of creating this ensemble cast to where... It doesn't feel unequally yoked in any way, shape, or form. And I think it can't be, uh, it cannot be overemphasized how, in a, how groundbreaking, in a sense, it is that you have this action film where the cast is so diverse, so truly diverse, and you, you, it would have you, you take this film and you put it ten years previous. I don't think you see a cast as diverse as this. And you don't even think about it. That's the beautiful thing 
about the casting in this is you don't think about any of these people in any other context than this is this character, and I don't see why this would be anything different. Like, it's so perfect. It, it's such a perfect puzzle that they put together here that the the final picture is just unassailable in terms of casting. I, I mean, they, they deserve so much credit yeah. for casting the right actors in the right roles. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't think, you know... <laughs> We can we can all make fun of Keanu. I know kung fu, um, you know, and, and those kind of things. But you know, I feel like he really does pull off the role. And and the most important thing that I think he does is that. And and seeing this in the extras, they were talking about how dedicated he was, even with his neck issues and his back issues, to the training, and that he was somebody who always just wanted to get it perfect. And I think that shows in the film. Mm-hmm. In in that you know, um, he you you get that sense from everything that's happening with him on screen the whole time, and so I I agree with you one hundred percent. I mean, obviously this made Carrie Ann Moss a household name. Mm-hmm. Uh, this brought Lawrence Fishburne to way new heights. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody was talking about it, and, and like you said, I definitely think you know Hugo Weaving does goes on to do so many other things whether it's lord of the rings or you know being the red skull i mean just like he's a guy who continually works because he's so amazing at what he does and he just seems so amiable like the world's nicest guy who can play either the world's worst villain or you know most perfect elf Mm -hmm. uh you know like he his range is fantastic so absolutely astounded um at the casting job here. And I, I think all in all, you know, I, I don't know. Is there a rating that you'd give the Matrix? I mean, honestly, can, can it be rated? <laughs> uh, I, I would honestly give it a five. I mean, a five out of five. Like, I, I, mm. I, I, yeah. I do think that this is, there's not a moment wasted. There's not a single thing that I would, like, there are movies where you can sit down and you can love them and you can adore them and you can say, yeah, but here you could move this or ah, this scene feels a little extraneous. I, I come out of the Matrix and I don't, I'm, as many times as I've seen it, and I've seen it a lot of times. This is one of the first DVDs I ever bought because you get a DVD player. You're like, well, yeah, I'm going to get the Matrix. Like, I, I, I struggle to think of a single scene. There's nothing that drags. There's nothing that doesn't ring true there's nothing wasted and even the soundtrack is incredible and i just you know uh, yeah i i consider this just an, an absolutely perfect film in every way that it can be yeah you know it's funny because i want to went and put this on letterbox uh, again as a rewatch it was rated four stars and i was like why did four stars and i moved i moved it up to 4.5 but as we've been talking about it i, I think you are making some fantastic points that this movie is kind of practically, it's like the Mary Poppins of action films. Right. <laughs> because you there it is practically perfect in every way. There isn't anything that, you know, this film specifically, like, divorce it from its sequels. This movie doesn't even, I mean, it's one of those films that it doesn't even need a sequel. You don't come out of it feeling like I need to know more because it feels like a complete story. Yep. 100% and and I honestly wish that they had left it that way because I think it would have been considered one of the greatest films of all time Yep. because like you said it is perfect in and of itself and so you know I 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm going to have to go bump this up to five stars because it's, you know, or five broken glasses. Um, five bent spoons. Yes, five bent spoons. Well, John, there are no spoons. So, um, yeah. Five, ooh, five cookies given to us ooh. by the Oracle. Oh, Oracle. Definitely made me feel better. Yes. Anyway, um, <laughs> this has been the, you know, just, a, I would say, a practically perfect episode of the 602 Club. You know, fantastic <laughs> to sit back and uh, just talk about The Matrix and a movie that, as we mentioned, has had such an influence on film in the same way that Star Wars did. And it's it's fascinating to see how that's gone forward. One of the things I, I loved about, you know, the, the what this film did and, and watching some of the extras, the Kowski brothers talked about the idea of, of why they did slow-mo mm. and that they used slow-mo because it reminded them of those frames in a comic book that let you just soak in that moment and oh, so slow-mo yeah. allows you to kind of and so i really brought me to films that use slow-mo you know i was thinking of like a 300 or you know um you know, Zack snyder definitely likes slow motion but it made sense then why he also is somebody who uses that as a as a as a tool because it really is trying to capture that splash page feel of sure. a comic book you know and 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 it allows you to feel almost like you're you know when you're especially when you're watching a comic movie so and, and in many ways then matrix is an anime comic book yeah. on screen um in live action and so it's yeah it is kind of a a 20th century masterpiece of, of filmmaking uh, from two film directors who you know i mean they did bound so they could get the money to do this um, so that people, that, you know, they go, yeah. like, oh, they can make a movie, okay? Uh, so, but this just exceeds all expectations. So, um, and I hope this episode of the 602 Club has exceeded all of your expectations. Is it ha If it hasn't, you know, hit me up on Twitter and let me know where I, how, how horribly I did wrong. But I want to <laughs> thank, um, I want to thank some gentlemen who help make sure this show comes to you each and every week. Uh, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson and Daniel Noah support this show through Patreon and there are associate producers through Patreon and I really appreciate their support. Each one of them has individually, uh, when they have you know, made the pledge to be an associate producer here on this show the, the reason they have done is much the reason that you you know, highlighted at the beginning of the show of why you've liked the show, John, and why you feel like it's lasted. And that support has meant the world to me. And so I want to give a special shout out to them and thank them individually for their work um, on making sure that this show keeps coming to each and every week, but also everything on the network. Um, you know, as you can imagine with a show that, uh, and a network that has this many shows coming at you, it's very expensive to do. Um, it does cost quite a bit. And so we do ask you to be part of the team and go over to patreon.com slash trekfm see how you can be part of that team uh every little bit helps we do have some contribution levels that you can give at um but um again if you can help us out we would really appreciate it so again patreon.com slash track fm uh you know uh, john i want you to help everybody out and let them know where they can find you 
uh, and talk to you about maybe their favorites, you know, 602 Club episodes, the ones that you've been on. Uh, maybe <laughs> they can find other shows that you do because they'd be interested because you've been on so many episodes of the 602 Club. And why does Matt like this guy so much? I, you I know, know I'm people... still trying to figure that out. Everybody's still trying to figure that one out, Matt. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I... <laughs> You can find me over uh, online, Kessel Junkie, K-E-S-S-E-L-J-U-N-K-I-E. Uh, spent a fair amount of time on Twitter. You can also find me over, same nom de plume over on Letterboxd, over on Goodreads. Uh, and you can find me over on The Nerd Party, uh, co-hosting a Star Wars podcast, which was born of Star Wars discussions here on the 602 Club. Uh, called Aggressive Negotiations with a delightful co-host, a fellow Jedi Master named Matt Rushing. Yes. You. Oh, that guy. It's you. Oh, yeah, me. You oh, me. are the chosen okay. one. Yeah. Ah, oh, my name is Neo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but everybody should be checking you out on those places, John. Um, not just the shows that I'm on with you, but yes, you, you have plenty else going on. And, and make sure you give John a follow. He's a he's a good follow on Twitter. He, he tweets funny things. Um, <laughs> but Debatable. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram under the same name. I am here on the network occasionally doing The Orb with Chris Jones when we can get an episode out to you about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, so please do check that out. Uh, check out the aforementioned Aggressive Negotiations as well as on the Nerd Party Network. I'm doing Owl Post with Trey Kaufman. We talk about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. We are almost done with The Goblet of Fire, and then we'll be moving, of course, into The Order of the Phoenix. It's been a great series. If you love that series of, uh, of Harry Potter and those, those films and the books specifically, check that out. And then last but not least, I do a show with my good friend Courtney called Cinema Stories, and that's where we talk about films, but specifically through the lens of faith. So, as always, thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back now, you hear? Thank you.